Hey, it's the Old House Podcast. Thanks for coming back. This is episode three, which is called the... Let me see. What did I call it? I called it, There's Got to Be a Rainbow After That Weird, Scary Debate. And the subjects here today are the debate, Trump talking about telling the white supremacists to stand by when he was asked to tell them to stand down. And um, we've got the death of Helen Reddy, which really leads to a discussion of the song, I Am One Woman. I don't really know much about Helen Reddy. I just know that iconic song. There's the experience of the rainbow that we had this morning. There's the question whether the market's are reacting positively or negatively to the debates. And there's the issue of critical race theory as it came up in the debate. And finally, because I've updated this podcast, you know, you may have listened to it before, but I figured out how to use the Anchor software to update things. So I also have a new post, which went up at about 1225 on the blog. That's about the way Biden kept calling uh, Trump, man, hey, man, how you doing, man? Shut up, man, you know, all of that. And that was really kind of a cover for talking about packing the court, which is something Biden doesn't like to do. Asked to tell white supremacists to stand down. Trump said, proud boys, stand back and stand by. Stand by? Let's look at the transcript of last night's debate. Chris Wallace said, you have repeatedly criticized the vice president for not specifically calling out Antifa and other left-wing extremist groups. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Trump, sure, I'm willing to do that. That's oddly clever. Asked, are you willing? He says, I'm willing. That's very literal, but the question invited him to do it. Not to say he's willing to do it. Why not forthrightly take the cue to do it? Say white supremacists and militia groups, you need to stand down. Just do it. What holds him back? Wallace has to reprompt. Are you prepared specifically to do it? He doesn't say the equivalent of, I'm willing this time. He could be cleverly literal again and say, I am prepared instead of doing it. But this time he changes the subject to the other side is worse. I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing and not from the right wing. Wallace lamely says, but what are you saying? Trump abandons the effort to stress the violence on the left and goes to the highest level of generality. I'm willing to do anything. I want to see peace. Picking up on that willing to do anything, Wallace says, we'll do it, sir. And Biden jumps in, say it, do it, say it. Having leapt at generality, Trump leaps at specificity. What do you want to call them? Give me a name, give me a name. Go ahead, who do you want me to condemn? Chris Wallace says, white supremacist and white right-wing militia. Who exactly does Wallace mean? Is he referring to all who can be called white supremacists? Or is white supremacist 
like right-wing, a modifier for militia. White supremacist is a completely confusing term nowadays because critical race theory people would call nearly everything white supremacist. Trump comes up with his own specificity, one group with a name, Proud Boys. And this is the big line that Trump came out with. He said, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. Stand back and stand by. The original demand was that he tell potentially violent right-wingers to stand down. That's the normal English phrase that tells potential fighters not to fight. Maybe Trump remembered the verb stand and forgot the preposition down. Under pressure, he thought of back because stand back is also an idiomatic expression. It refers to observers and intermeddlers who are getting too close. Perhaps he realized that he had the wrong phrase, so he tried again. He came up with stand by, still wrong. And worse, it sounds as though he's saying remain on the alert and be prepared to fight. The Trump-favoring interpretation is that the right preposition to go with stand had slipped his mind and he was groping for the right word and clumsily tried back and then by. The Trump-hostile interpretation is that he meant to tell the Proud Boys that their efforts might be helpful in the future, perhaps quite soon, that he deliberately gave them some encouragement, winked that he liked them, that he knew what they were about and thought they had a contribution to make at some point, just not quite yet. Maybe Trump himself doesn't quite know. Maybe he simply wants to vaguely or distinctly, maybe maybe he simply wants the vaguely or distinctly racist right to get out there and vote for him. A vote's a vote, nothing more. From there, he goes back to that change of subject he tried before. The left is worse. But I'll tell you what somebody's got to do But I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing problem, this is left-wing. That inspires Biden to say something that people are going to talk about. Biden says, his own FBI director said, unlike white supremacist, Antifa is an idea, not an organization, not a militia. Antifa is an idea. Trump scoffs at that. Oh, you got to be kidding me. But Biden and Trump are talking about two different things. There is action. Uh, Trump is scoffing because there is real-life Antifa violence on the streets. There is action, not just an idea. But Biden is talking about the lack of an organization named Antifa. Antifa is a word for an idea even if the idea lives in the mind of various human beings who take to the streets and wreak havoc. So in this this section of the debate, both men uttered a phrase that can be used to accuse them of not taking the violence on their side seriously enough, or even of subtly encouraging the violent factions on their side. Trump said, proud boys stand back and stand by, and Biden said, Antifa is an idea. Both statements can be minimized and explained away, and both can be inflated and made to seem shockingly ominous. Is anyone today minimizing both or inflating both? I haven't read any of the analysis of the debate. I'm writing based on watching the debate and looking closely at the transcript. My guess is no. Biden supporters will inflate Trump's statement and minimize Biden's, 
and Trump supporters will inflate Biden's statement and minimize Trump's. I like to be a distinctive writer, but I don't really want to be the only person who's showing that both statements can be minimized and both can be inflated. That's my brand, cruel neutrality. It shouldn't be such a rare product. If it is, it's because it's not the sort of thing people want to buy. It's not the way to do politics, really. It's just a perverse sideline over here. Talk about standing back and standing by and not being any sort of organization. I see that Helen Reddy died. She was most famous, most distinctive in my mind for the song, I Am Woman, kind of iconic song. I know she did other songs, but she sang in a genre that I didn't really listen to. I Am Woman came out in 1971. I remember thinking it was sort of embarrassingly um, forthright and uh, just not, I didn't think it was artistic enough. I thought it was kind of a, um, wasn't the kind of feminism that appealed to me, but it really worked as an anthem. And of course it gained such stature over the years that that really, really meant a lot to people. And uh, she she was a good singer and she sang it in a style that to me seems corny, but um, but it's an anthem. Uh, an anthem should be corny. You know, it's like Kate Smith singing God Bless America. You've got Helen Reddy singing I Am Woman. It It's just part of, she's she was Australian, I think, so I can't really say it's part of America. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's part of the, uh, the world of women. I'm woman, hear me roar in numbers too big to ignore. Notice that uh, female supremacy, she's really invoking the idea of the the majority there. Women are the majority, so we dominate, we have dominance. Um, is that the reason for our strength that we ha- we've got the numbers? You know, that kind of reasoning w- is the basis of uh, a lot of things you really wouldn't want to endorse. But um, I guess if you're subordinated and the majority, that's a weird special problem, and it's really only something that that women have. So what was going on there made you you think about that. No one's ever going to keep me down again. You know, I I didn't have a tag on the blog for Helen Reddy. I wouldn't have written about Helen Reddy. But I, uh, so I wanted to make a tag, and instead of making a Helen Reddy tag, I made the tag I Am Woman, because I thought, I must have written about that song before. Really, it's the song that stands out to me, not the career of this particular singer. There's so many singers, I can't really have tags for all of them on the blog, but I wanted to make a, a tag for Helen Reddy. I mean, excuse me, for I Am Woman, the song. And uh, then I had to go back and see where it belonged. And I had written about it once before. I had written about the song in, um, on July 17th, 2008. And it's, the post title is a line from the song, but I'm still an embryo with a long, long way to go. And uh, what I wrote, in that old post is, for some reason, I didn't reflexively change the channel when Helen Reddy singing I Am Woman came on the radio today. And I even listened to the lyrics, something I probably hadn't done since the 70s. I've always considered this song annoying and embarrassing. I was amazed by the line, but I'm still an embryo with a long, long way to go. Here's this big old feminist anthem, 
and the woman is calling herself an embryo. In the comments, uh, so after I published this post, I got a comment that I wanted to quote, invoking the most well-known line in the song, I am woman, hear me roar, Anba writes, a roaring embryo? That is grotesque. Actually, it explains something about the psychology of abortion. The unready, unready, the unready pregnant woman feels she is in competition with the embryo because she herself has not yet had a chance to fully develop. It's a question of whether she is expected to abort her own development and step aside and put that new embryo at the center. It's indignation at all those thousands of years when it was rarely considered important or even permissible for girls to develop their own gifts and interests, when at best they had to subordinate doing so to being mothers. It's a making up for lost time kind of thing. This is the other side of the story, which I can also understand. And I wrote, brilliant. I write that before reading the next comment from Victoria, brilliant. And Victoria goes on saying, it's a making up for lost time kind of thing. Maybe I'm missing the gene which allows people to think in these terms, but this is just absurd. If you're going to live your life based on a quasi revenge factor, then don't be surprised if others do too. A man might think, hey, you know the millions of women throughout the ages who suckered men into marriage by getting pregnant. Guess what, ladies? It's payback time. Then Maureen Dowd wonders why she can't get a man. And Amba responds to that and says, hadn't thought of it as revenge, more a sort of plaintive, hey, what about me? It's my turn. But now that you mention it, hmm, if some of the stories on I'm not sorry, e.g., there is a lot of rage, as if the embryo were a parasite that had attacked the woman. In some of the stories on I'm Not Sorry, I'm Not Sorry is a web page. I, well, forgotten about this. I wonder if it's still up. A web page, I think, of women saying they're not sorry they got an abortion because there had been a lot of effort at the time to tell stories of women who were sorry they had an abortion. So it's a way to try to talk people into not getting an abortion by saying you might regret it. You could regret it. A lot of women regret it. So these are the stories of women who didn't regret it. I'm not sorry. So Ambit wrote, in some of the stories on I'm not sorry, there is a lot of rage, as if the embryo were a parasite that had attacked the woman. But e.g. this song, it's definitely competitive. I want to be the one at the center of attention. I want to be the one that's celebrated and anticipated and nurture. I want to nurture me. And then continuing in the comments, Chuck B said, it's amusing to think that somewhere in the American West today, a radio station played I Am Woman. Maybe it was a dream. That's the end of what Chuck B said. And I said, it amuses me to think that you take comfort in consigning the playing of I Am Woman to a place in the American Midwest. I was listening to a channel called 70s on 7 on XM Satellite Radio. He thought I was listening to a local station in the Midwest and uh, was kind of sniffing at me a little bit the way people who don't live in the Midwest sniff at the Midwest. But the truth is, I was listening to the satellite radio. It's the same station everyone gets. And I was just on the 70s channel. And uh, Chuck B threw this on top of that. 
Did the masculine women of the American Midwest with their tight perms and mom jeans unite in choral joy? <laughs> and I said, now that's just irksome. It irks reader I am who lives in Iowa. I think Chuck's in San Francisco. Reddy was an Australian. Reader I am wrote, why the Midwest? It's clear I'm missing something. What is it? That's an actual question. Are either of you willing to plainly state an answer? Chuck tried to answer that. He said, why Midwest? Well, A House, he called me A House. Well, A House was driving there and the song came on and I thought women of the Midwest unite. But there is a kind of joking, joking understanding in America about Midwestern women being manly-esque, having tight perms, wearing mom jeans. I'm playing with a crude stereotype, that's all. I could play with people in other places too. I don't wanna be cruel, I just wanna offend. Sarah Silberman is like my girlfriend and she would be my girlfriend if she wasn't with that Jimmy guy and if I wasn't gay. And if I was a lot funnier and more intelligent and Jewy than I really am. A childhood spent reading penthouse letters taught me the other stereotype about Midwestern girls, that they all attend Midwestern universities and have long honey blonde hair and tanned pert little titties. It is all good. That's Chuck. So I was just reading what Chuck said. That was not my, um, that was not me using the J-E-W-Y word and not me using the T-I-T-T-I-E-S word. Um, I'm just reading what, but I did front page it, so I thought it was amusing. It's not me saying I'm gay. I'm not gay. It's Chuck saying that. So, uh, but that's, uh, that's fine. The Midwest girls uh, and the Northern girls uh, keep their boyfriends warm at night. That's what I think of when I think of the women in the different locations. I think of the Beach Boys, California girls, which is much more a song that, uh, that, 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 I, that I liked and would think of. Uh, not I am woman, I, I like uh, California girls. I see there's a, let's see. Let's look at the lyrics of that so I can get the Northern Girls. Uh, you know, there's a Katy Perry song, California Girls. Got different lyrics, and girls is spelled G-U-R-L-S. I don't know that song. Greetings, loved ones, let's take a journey. I know a place where the grass is really greener. I guess uh, that's about California. Must be something in the water, sipping gin and juice. Laying under the palm trees. Okay, she's singing California Girls. Takes some nerve to uh, reuse that uh, title of one of the very best Beach Boys songs, which went through the different places in the United States, speaking of uh, America and the ethos of America. You have um, the Midwest, oh, Midwest got in there. Northern girls who keep their boyfriends warm at night, those were not the Midwest girls. The Northern girls were somewhere else. I'm not sure what part of the North the Beach Boys were talking about when they said the Northern girls with the way they kiss, they keep their boyfriends warm at night. That was not the Midwest Northern girls. 
that must have either been girls up in Montana or or Washington and Oregon, or or maybe he meant uh, they meant the um, the New England girls, Maine girls in Maine or something. Uh, but the Midwest is represented by the Midwest farmers' daughters. Really make you feel all right. You know, the East Coast girls were hip and had styles, fashion. The Southern girls, it was the Southern accent. The Northern girls, it was kissing and being warm at night, basically being good in bed, Northern girls, because you're cold, so just getting under the covers presumably was a, a excellent uh, effect. But uh, the Midwest, first of all, he's put, they're putting us on farms, and the, the line is just, make you feel all right. He's talking about how the man feels. Right? Not anything about the woman, but somehow uh, it, it's indirect. It's the feeling that the man gets. So I, I feel like the Midwest wasn't well enough represented in that song. How did I get off on this kick about uh, California girls when I was talking about, um, about uh, Helen Reddy and the song I Am Woman? Oh, we got into this long... Uh, old post from 2008. That's right. Did I get to the end of that? Oh, yes. It got to Chuck B in the comments who had said, called me Midwestern. Somewhere in the American Midwest today, a radio station played I Am Woman. That's where that came from. But it, it was just me in the Midwest being me in Madison, Wisconsin, which is not a dairy farm, I hate to tell you. Um, and, uh, and Chuck imagining things, and I was a little offended at partly because um, I'm in Madison, which isn't your idea of the Midwest when you're talking to me as a gay man from San Francisco who adores Sarah Silverman and so forth, um, and, uh, and partly because uh, I was listening to the satellite radio, not to a local channel. But, you know, it was really cool in the old days when you drove around the country and as you got from place to place, you listened to what was on the radio in that place. I remember driving out west years ago before I had satellite radio on the car and I had an AM-FM radio and it had a scan function so it would go all the way around and look to pick up the stations. And there were places out in the west, like driving across the so-called loneliest road in Nevada, where um, you know you just couldn't get anything. It would go the whole way around and keep going around. But the cool thing was, and I, I could pinpoint the year um, because I know the song that kept being on the radio when I would put it on scan and it would go all the way around and maybe stop on one channel. It kept, uh, it kept hitting the same song. I'll tell you the year. The year was 1998. You're driving across the country. You don't have satellite radio. You're down on the loneliest road in America, which goes across uh, Nevada. And uh, you, you, you're trying to get music to come on the radio, and you hit the scan button. It goes all the way around, and it finally hits one place. And you drive hundreds of miles. You're going through many different areas, uh, hitting sequentially different local radio channels as you go along. And you find them because of the scan. And it goes all the way around the dial and stops on that one channel that's there. And the same song kept being there. The year was 1998. What was that song? 
I'll tell you. Time's up for guessing. The song was Believe by Cher. I heard that it was, it was, a, it was a uncanny. But today, you want to drive across the country, you have your car, you have your satellite radio. All the channels are there, the same channels you listen to when you're at home. So that's that. So we went out running to our usual spot this morning and there was this beautiful um, pre-sunrise effect in the sky that I call the broiler, which is some of the most beautiful colors and light on the clouds come 10 or even 20 minutes before dawn. There's something about the position of the clouds that cause the sun, which is still out of view, to put really pretty light on the clouds. So if you time your run the same way in relation to the sunrise time, you'll miss some of the best sunrises because they come so early. But usually that doesn't happen. But to, So today was one of those days I was finishing up a blog post, which I'll read to you in a minute, but I was finishing up a blog post. We got out slightly late and then there was this early effect it was really quite beautiful, but we missed that. And then we got out to the point where we have a really clear view of the sunrise. And at that point, the sun was too bright and the really pretty effects on the clouds that I'd seen, that we'd seen as we were running out, that was no longer visible because the sun had actually come into view and it was really bright and shining uh, right at you. You couldn't really photograph whatever was in the clouds unless you, positioned the camera so that the sun was behind a tree. That's a kind of, uh, I think, rather low quality device to use to get a picture of the sunrise when the sun is in the picture. So um, I didn't really get a good look, a, a good image looking at the eastern view, the sunrise, but turning around toward the left, suddenly there was a rainbow there. So that was really, really great. And uh, I have a nice picture of that on the blog. But I also have a picture that uh, my dear husband, the person that I'm making this podcast for, who is really very uh, kind and uh, sweet, and just washed this window that I'm looking out at the trees from right now. Very nice, intensely uh, clear image through the window. Because the windows, you know, you can wash your windows and you can really wash your windows. And uh, this is an excellent cleaning of the windows. I really appreciate it. But anyway, when we were out and I had turned around from the sun that was too bright to the western view, there was a rainbow. And really, the rain was approaching from uh, the west and re really pretty effect in the clouds. But uh, there was rain out there. That's why I was seeing a rainbow, but it wasn't raining on me. And as I lingered to watch the rainbow, I could then hear the rain on the water. So the, the rain was approaching first, that was understood because there, was, there were clouds and there was a rainbow, but then it was understood orally as the you know, pattering of the rain happened on the lake, our beautiful lake, Mendota. And um, I knew it was gonna get to me and I would actually experience the real water effect of rain, the feeling of rain pretty soon, not just the sight and the sound, so I had to turn around and um, run back. But uh, you, if you go to the blog, you'll see there's a picture that uh, my dear husband took of me and I'm uh, pointing at the rainbow, 
like, duh, there's a rainbow. You know, everyone sees the rainbow, but people like to say, look, there's a rainbow. Did you see the rainbow? A rainbow, calling it a rainbow, like, like little children. People love rainbows, and they, uh, it does make you a little childlike when you see a rainbow. So I'm pointing at the rainbow. I've got my back to the camera, and I thought the picture was spoiled by like a kind of a, a bleached out yellow blotch on my hair. But I realized, no, that's not a defect in the photograph. That's actually the way that intensely glaring sun was shining on my hair. It was putting a spot right on part of it. So I think it's an interesting picture because of the rainbow, because of the kind of silliness of my pointing at it, and by the uh, streak of intense light in my hair that kind of matches the rainbow. It's right with a, a streak of uh, white yellow. So that's the story of the rainbow. I have one of these overheard at Mead House dialogues, a very brief dialogue this morning. This was put up at 8.02 a.m. Oh, the market doesn't like that Biden won the debate. Maybe what the market doesn't like is that all we've got now are two idiots. Well, how was it 8.02? So I'm looking at the Dow Jones now, and I see that it's up 377.71 points, up 1.38%. So maybe the market does like that Biden won the debate, or maybe the market does like that uh, now all we've got are two idiots. Because, you know, after that crazy debate last night, I really feel like, well, one thing's for sure, we're getting a clown for president. As I said in yesterday's podcast, before the debate, before the debate in which Biden called Trump a clown, before the debate, go back to yesterday's podcast and you'll see it, I said uh, it was a clownocracy, government by clowns, and that we were, we were sure to get a clown one way or the other. It's just what kind of clown do you want? Do you want the big boisterous orange clown? Or do you want the more quiet, uh, uh, creaking around, uh, dumb guy, silly guy? toothy guy. They're clowns either way. Both of them are inadequate. I've been doing some posts about the uh, using the transcript, writing from the transcript, things that I remembered. I'm not reading the analysis. There's just too much of it out there. And you know, yesterday before the debate on the TV, I had to leave the room. It was terrible. Uh, this, the lead up to the debate, what to look for. And then afterwards, oh, what we saw. I get tired of all of that analysis. So I like to do my own analysis. I like to go to the transcript. So um, I do have one more post, and it's the one I worked on pretty hard this morning before I got out for the debate. And I did take the time to proofread it before running out to the debate. And if I'd have just let it be up without the proofreading and proofread when I got back, I wouldn't have missed the beautiful broiler sunrise. Broiler part of the sunrise, the pre-sunrise, beautiful effects on the clouds that I did miss. I wouldn't have missed them if I had, um, if I had uh, just let the, let the post go up and be, um, be unperfect. So I would have gotten better pictures, but I really thought, I knew I would come back, find some little error that really affected the meaning, and then um, that would have, I would have felt bad about that. So here's the post that I took the time to proofread. 
before I went out for the run and that, uh, you know, I paid with the loss of the true effect of today's beautiful broiler uh, in order to get this up in a form that wouldn't have any confusing typos. And I did find a few typos. Anyway, now I'm going to read it. And it was the first post of the day. So when I get through reading this, I'm going to end the podcast and I'll just uh, publish it. And then you'll have a podcast to listen to. You can walk around all day and have the audio version of the podcast. I mean, I probably will write a few more posts, but they're not going to get into the podcast. This is the morning group, the main part of the blog, the morning post. So here's the first post. This was the first thing I wanted to write after sleeping on the debate. Watched the debate, slept on it, got a fine night's sleep, no Trump, no Biden in my dreams. I almost never dream about Trump. I don't think I've ever dreamed about Biden. I famously dreamed about Trump once back in when he was running for president in 2015, maybe 2016, probably 2015, where in my dream, I, I didn't have any awareness that I liked Trump at all. But I hugged him and thanked him in my dream. And what I was thanking him for was the benefit to freedom of speech, that the things, the way he spoke, I felt created courage in all of us to speak more freely. That was my dream about him that I've always remembered. And uh, when I woke up, I felt like that was a really intense feeling of realizing that he had been, that what he was willing to do in his speaking was an inspiration, was encouraging to, to all of us. Not encouraging to say necessarily what he was saying, but just to go ahead and say things and accept the consequences and that you're really better off doing that than trying to weasel, weasel through life and not say what you really mean. You don't have to become president though. Anyway, here's that first post of the day. So it's a little bit long, but uh, we'll get through it. And I think this will be enlightening. It's about critical race theory. Ask to explain why he ended racial sensitivity training in federal agencies, Trump should have been able to state clearly what critical race theory is. At the debate last night, Chris Wallace led by equating racial sensitivity training and critical race theory and tossed in systemic racism. And here's the quote from Chris Wallace. This month, your administration directed federal agencies to end racial sensitivity training that addresses white privilege or critical race theory. Why did you decide to do that? To end racial sensitivity training? And do you believe that there is systemic racism in this country, sir? Trump began well. I ended it because it's racist. But he should have said clearly why he regards it as racist. Why would racial sensitivity training be racist? I know the argument. But not everyone does, and whether we know it or not, Trump should have capsulized the reason for regarding the kind of training that's been going on as racist. What he said next was, I ended it because a lot of people were complaining that they were asked to do things that were absolutely insane. And I said, what things? It's just a weird assertion. Things that were absolutely insane. And Trump goes on, that 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 is a radical revolution that was taking place in our military 
in our schools, all over the place. And you know it, and so does everyone else. And he would know it. He should have, and I said, he should have said why it's racist, insane, and radical. But instead, he went into a you know it, everybody knows it mode, which misses the opportunity to make a good point and makes him look like he actually doesn't know. And he didn't just say, I ended it because a lot of people, and, and he did just say, I ended it because a lot of people were complaining, suggesting that he ended it because people were complaining, not because he knew it was wrong and he had a reason to end it on his own, but just people came to him, said it was bad, so he went along with them. That's what it looks like to me. And I wonder, maybe he doesn't know. I wish uh, Chris Wallace would have challenged him to explain. Do you even know what you're talking about? I would be a terrible host because I would be so rude, but a really rude moderator would be great with Trump. You know, he's been asked to do a debate on Joe Rogan. I'm sure Joe Biden won't do that, but Trump said he would do Joe Rogan. And I would love to hear Trump questioned by Joe Rogan, by someone who, you know, can be a tough guy questioning the tough guy. Chris Wallace has too much of a stake in being a nice person. And then that gravitates him to, to Biden. So what? Uh, instead of challenging Trump to explain what he was talking about, what he saw as so wrong in that training, Chris Wallace said, what is, re well, I guess he kind of, you know, he didn't say, tell us what critical race theory is. Do you even know? Chris Wallace said, what is radical about racial sensitivity training? And I said, good question, following up on his own false equation of racial sensitivity training and critical race theory. So now it's really time for Trump to get specific and drive a wedge between those two concepts. And Trump says, if you were a certain person, you had no status in life. What? It was sort of a reversal. What? And if you look at the people we were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to teach very bad ideas and frankly, very sick ideas. And I said, explain critical race theory. He needs to do that right here. What are the very sick ideas? What's the reversal? Who are the certain persons with no status in life? Was that supposed to refer to working class white people who don't like hearing that they have white privilege? I'm just guessing. Trump doesn't help. He makes it vaguely about patriotism and traditional values and sounds as though he's covering up for a lack of knowledge of the theory that he saw fit to ban. He says, and really, they were teaching people to hate our country. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to allow that to happen. We have to go back to the core values of this country. They were teaching people that our country is a horrible place. It's a racist place. And they were teaching people to hate our country. And I'm not going to allow that to happen. And I said, he called the theory racist. And then he criticized it for teaching that America is racist. Those are two different things. Unless you want to argue that it's racist to call America racist. That's not the argument that critical race theory is racist. But it's a reminder that Trump never answered the question, do you believe that there is systemic racism in this country? But it's Biden's turn at this point. And Biden says, nobody's doing that. He's the racist. Simple assertions, also without substance. And it's 
utterly unbelievable that nobody's doing that, except to the extent that it's not clear what that is. Trump interrupts to say, you just don't know. And Biden says, here's the deal, a phrase that popped out of his mouth 12 times last night. I know a lot more about this. The fact is that there is racial insensitivity. So Biden got away with sticking to this idea of sensitivity rather than the critical race theory. He's able to portray what's being taught as not radical at all, but just generic social niceness. Biden goes on, people have to be made aware of what other people feel like, what insults them, what is demeaning to them. It's important people know. Many people don't want to hurt other people's feelings, but it makes a big difference. It makes a gigantic difference in the way a child is able to grow up and have a sense of self-esteem. Then Biden changes the topic to himself and his usual trope that he's the working class guy. So he obviously doesn't buy what critical race theory is foisting on people. Biden says, it's a little bit like how this guy and his friends look down on so many people. They look down their nose on, they look down their nose on people like Irish Catholics, like me, who grew up in Scranton. They look down on people who don't have money. They look down pe on people who are of a different faith. And I said, interestingly, Biden is like Trump here, concerned about the white working class. Biden gets back to race. They look down on people who are a different color. In fact, we're all Americans. The only way we're gonna bring this country together is bring everybody together. There's nothing we cannot do if we do it together. We can take this on and we can defeat racism in America. And I said, whoa, that's not critical race theory. That's colorblindness. Ironically, Biden would be excoriated at one of these training sessions Trump ended. But Trump doesn't know enough about the subject to skewer Biden here. And Trump failed to use the catchphrase he'd deployed elsewhere in the debate. He just lost the left, right? He said that when Biden said something about uh, not buying the Green New Deal, he just lost the left. Trump should have said he just lost the left here when Biden said something that's completely out of line with critical race theory. We all have to come together. Uh, we're all Americans. It doesn't matter if we're a different color. That's uh, old-fashioned talk. That's exactly what uh, critical race theory training is telling people they can't get away with. He's doing it. He, I, I just don't think Biden knows what critical race theory is at all. And he, he needs the left. He just said something that's so out of keeping with the left. But Trump, who uh, was using this catchphrase, he just lost the left when Biden said something moderate that wasn't left wing. But Trump didn't see the occasion to use that phrase here, which he should have done. I said that line would have fit perfectly here, but I don't think Trump even noticed. Instead, Trump lunges into the subject of the racial divisions that existed during the Obama-Biden administration. He brings up Ferguson and asserts that it was more violent than what I'm even seeing now. Biden exclaims, oh my Lord, and this is ridiculous. Whether Trump's assertion is right or wrong, we could fact check. It's changing the subject. 
I presume Trump is avoiding discussing critical race theory and the training he ended. He should be vaunting his achievement, but I don't think he even understands what it was. Trump accuses Biden of not wanting to talk about law and order. Trump wants to talk about violence in the streets. And Trump doesn't want to talk about critical race theory. We hear, so both of them don't want, or he doesn't want to talk about something, but he does want to talk about how Biden doesn't want to talk about law and order. We hear Trump pressure Biden. Are you in favor of law and order? Biden says, I'm an in favor of law, and then he gets interrupted by Trump asking it again, are you in favor of law and order? Wallace has to intervene and say, let him answer your question. You ask him a question, and you don't even give him a chance to answer the question. Say it, say it. Trump, you know, it's a little bit like these uh, protesters on the street who go up to people and say, say it, say it. You have to say uh, the words and the right. Are you in favor of black, uh, you know, say, say black lives matter, uh, say law and order. A lot of uh, a lot of discourse happening these days like that. You have to say my words. You say my words in my order. Why won't you say it? Why won't you say it? And then then you get in trouble with them for not saying the words in the way they want you to say them. You know that that everybody can do that. It's a real uh, low level of discourse if that's what we're doing. Trying to make other people say the words, say the creed, show that you're. Uh, the kind of person that uses these words and these orders. Trump says law and order uh, out on the street. People might say, say Black Lives Matter. I don't think the words Black Lives Matter ever appeared in this debate, but uh, um, there was an effort. There, there are these efforts to get people to say something. So a Trump, a Trump keeps pressuring him, are you in favor of law and order? And Biden gives what I think is a solid answer law and order with justice, where people get treated fairly. And so then I ended this post with just a couple more sentences, and this is going to be probably the end of the podcast. That's the exchange I remember most the morning after that crazy, chaotic debate. You know, it's pretty absurd for Trump to pose as the champion of law and order while bringing so much of a feeling of chaos to the debate. He's the one who loves order. I'm afraid of that kind of order. You know, if you want to be Mr. Order, if you want to appeal to the part of us that fears chaos and loves order, you need to present order, good order, fair order, law and order, not order, fear of chaos that's just going to be a crushingly oppressive order. It has to be order, the good kind of order, order that people will love and feel unoppressed by, feel helped by. Um, but Trump is a strange messenger of that. He really did look so chaotic and rough last night. When he came out, I said, uh, he looked tired. I thought he looked weary and tired. His face and his, his uh, expression just looked very rough as if he'd been, uh, you know, working out in the fields all day, getting a terrible sunburn and uh, just dragging himself in there to do something at night. And then he was very belligerent, very uh, testy and just interrupted so much. It felt so chaos. He felt like Mr. Chaos and yet he wants to be Mr. Order. That's so discordant, so weird. It just doesn't sink in as a coherent, sense of what this man is offering to bring to us. So I think for that reason, Biden won the debate. Biden also won the debate because he stood there for 90 minutes 
90 minutes it started at nine o'clock at night, nine o'clock uh, Eastern. He stood there for 90 minutes being a quite old man who people had been portraying as having trouble getting through a, a sentence. He got through the entire 90 minutes. He never significantly lost his temper. He seemed like he was a, a counterbalance to Trump. He stood his ground. He didn't say anything notably incoherent as far as I can remember, so he did it. He's a normal candidate. He's not some strange, empty shell controlled by other people. So he did everything he needed to do, and Trump was kind of just too rough, chaotic, and weird. You know, I voted against Trump in 2016 because I felt he was too weird to be president. I actually liked him in a lot of ways, and I really didn't like Hillary Clinton at all. I actively disliked her, but I just couldn't conceive of Trump as president. Now it's 2020, and Trump actually is president, so it almost doesn't make sense to say I can't conceive as, of Trump as president. But even after almost four years, it's still hard to imagine this person being president, and yet he is president. It's weird to not be able to imagine the reality that actually is. You know, you feel like you're going crazy if that happens. Here's reality around me, and I can't imagine that it's real. But it is real. Oh, yeah, I, I know that technically. I can see that, and yet in my deepest feelings, I can't believe that reality is real. That's the way Trump makes me feel. And he's not even trying to bring more stability. I think he came there trying to make Biden fall apart and break down over the course of 90 minutes. And he really leaned into that. I mean, if there's any order to what he was doing, it was that he came there with this plan to rattle and break down Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden didn't break down. Joe Biden got through the whole 90 minutes. So what was this crazy uh, enterprise that Trump was involved in? He had a game plan and he didn't score. So it was a failure. It was a miserable failure, a scary, weird failure. So I think uh, Biden tried to aggravate Trump by calling him man over and over. No. From the transcript, the first thing Biden said as he walked out onto the stage was, how you doing, man? Obviously that was planned. Trump returned to more polite, how are you doing? 18 minutes in, Biden said, will you shut up, man? The context was that the moderator, Chris Wallace, had asked Biden whether he supported packing the Supreme Court. Biden had refused to answer this question before, as Wallace noted, and he didn't want to answer it now. Whatever position I take on that, that'll become the issue. The issue is the American people should speak. You should go out and vote. You're voting now. Vote and let your senators know how strongly you feel. And I said, why shouldn't court packing be an issue that the American people would take into account as they vote? He should make clear what Democratic control of the White House and both houses of Congress would mean so that if people do vote for the Democrats, they're saying they want court packing. And it's not just about the senators. It takes a statute to increase the number of seats on the court. This answer is blatantly deceptive. Or is it clear that Biden does support court packing and just doesn't want to take responsibility for it? 
One could be against it, but know that some Democrats would hold that against him. It's understandable that Trump interrupts here. Are you going to pack the court? Biden's answer is, vote now. The second interruption is even more justified since Biden is outrageously evasive. Trump says, are you going to pack the court? Biden's answer is, make sure you, in fact, let people know, your senators. Trump quite appropriately announces he doesn't want to answer the question. Biden comes right out and says, I'm not going to answer the question. Trump interprets the failure to answer. Why wouldn't he answer the question? You want to put a lot of new Supreme Court justices, radical left. And that's where Biden says it. Will you shut up, man? I thought Trump interrupted too much, but reading that in the transcript, I like all that interruption. Trump kept it up. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? Who's on your list? And Chris Wallace tried to end the segment. Biden exclaimed, this is so unpresidential. And Trump got his substantive interpretation in neatly. He's going to pack the court. He is not going to give a list. Wallace announced, we have ended the segment. And Biden snuck sarcasm and another insulting use of man. That was really a productive segment, wasn't it? Keep yapping, man. First of all, that was yapping. And that was unpresidential. And if the segment wasn't productive, it was because Biden would not answer the question. So Biden addressed Trump as man, and he also spoke about him as this man. Example, this man as it is a savior of African Americans. This man cares at all. This man's done virtually nothing. When something is right next to you, and when someone is right next to you, and you speak of him in the third person, it feels insulting. And it's quite intentionally in, dis, uh, insulting when the distancing phrase, this man, is used over and over. So what did you think of that? Did you think that was a... But are you disagreeing that the use of... Do you think this man is insulting? I also went through and looked and saw that uh, Trump used you in speaking about Biden. Biden was there next to him, and, and Trump just routinely, naturally says you, which is the way one normally talks, unless you're addressing the moderator. He's talking to Biden. So Biden was more distancing of him, saying this man. I mean, I guess there was this talk even before the debate that maybe Biden shouldn't dignify Trump by appearing on the same stage with him. So maybe he had to act like uh, Trump was toxic and not worth talking about, not worth listening to. That may have stimulated Trump to be more aggravating and to interrupt a lot. It's funny, when I read the interruptions on the uh, transcript, I actually liked them. But they were Mm. brutal in person. Hmm. Just uh, and they didn't bother me as much as uh, I heard other people complaining about in the comments and saying I can't listen to this and people I'm not watching it. It didn't bother me that much. The only thing that bothered me was the volume on our TV 